Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, it's time to head down the dizzy road and mop it up with the Westies on SST 199, the self-titled Run Westie Run LP. We had the Westies on for the first time on SST 192, the Hardly Not Even LP, where we had Terry Fisher on. Everyone should go back and listen to that one. It's a great interview and a great record. But on this episode, we continue the Westie story with another special guest, Brent. Yeah, Bobby Joslin's on the show. Awesome to have uh, Bobby, the skin basher for the band on this record. I will say, though, Brent, you know, I'm a bass player. But when I listen to this album, it is just a delicious listen if you are a guitarist. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. like man, this this is a guitarist's album. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. So good. Anyways, Brent, before we get into it, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay. I have a Carducci update. <gasps> you might be scooping me, okay. but go for it. Go for it. Uh, well, the latest edition of his blog. You're scooping me. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> Uh, the new Vulgate has a, a number of interesting pieces, but the one I'll mention to you and our listeners, uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, is his piece on the oil tasters. Yeah. Sys- systematic and Thermidor. So he really dials down on what happened in the late 70s when he left Portland and moved to the Bay Area to start up Systematic Distribution and the Thermidor label, uh, along with the debut singles of the oil tasters and how brilliant he thought they were. And their one and only full length, which uh, he and John Beauchard released on Thermidor. Uh, he talks about Flag wanting to take them out on tour for uh, Damaged in 82 and also covering their song Bricks. So then he mentions a, a reissue of the Oil Taster's entire recorded output on Milwaukee label Splunge Communications. Did you check that website out, Ryan? I did. Uh, in Joe's article, he says that his spiel on the new Vulgate is adapted from an essay written for the Splunge Communications reissue of the Oil Tasters recorded output. And Splunge holds itself out as a multinational agency focused on issuing the best in punk and alternative music from Milwaukee. Very cool. Yeah, pretty cool little label. I did not know of it. There's a comp called History in Three Chords, two CDs of Milwaukee Punk 73 to 82. Yeah. Ton of bands I've never heard of, so I definitely want to track that down. And then there's this book, Brick Through the Window, an oral history of punk rock, new wave, and noise in Milwaukee 1964 to 84. Yeah, we mentioned that before. And, I thought and maybe, I, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have it, but I've since got it, and it's... It's massive. It almost it's almost as big as Phantoms. But I was look- going to say it's like six hundred plus pages. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to dive into it. It's been sitting on my shelf for a couple of months. Yeah. Did you check out that other band that Joe mentions, the Haskells? I did. Yep. Yep. Pr- pretty cool. Hey, mm-hmm. worth checking out. I would say. Yep. So I asked Joe because there's nothing on the on the site about this oil tasters reissue. Not yet. Yeah. Uh, he said. I think everything is backed up because of Adele's vinyl needs. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. I love that. That we're all blaming Adele. I love it. So uh, that record rules, that Oil Tasters record. So he, assur- yeah. he assures me it's still on its way. So Yeah. Do you Did you ask him whether the singles are going to be on there? I only have the full length. I don't have the singles. And I'm hoping that the singles are on there. The, like the article, the website says the entire recorded output. So I hope so. 
Yeah, that was my assumption, so I didn't ask him. It, it kind of sounds like that in the in the article. Yeah, I sure hope so. Okay, so more Joe Carducci, though. He was recently on the Punk Rock Academy podcast. Right. It's a good chat. One thing Joe mentions that perked my ears up that I'm not sure I've heard mentioned before is that SST almost signed the Butthole Surfers at one point. Oh, I've got a Butthole Surfers spiel. Okay. <laughs> We're at, like on the same wavelength today. Yeah. Nice. The hosts, he just mentioned it off the cuff and the hosts didn't follow up on it, so I did. So here's what Joe told me about that. He says, yes, Spot recorded them, but I'm not sure if that's what came out on Alternative Tentacles. Mm. I remember talking with Greg about whether we might do their record once they moved to LA in late 82. I think. They had rented in South Central and woke up with a burglar in their apartment. On one night, as I recall. <laughs> so they got spooked by L.A. We put them on several gigs with the Minutemen and others. Paul and Gibby were fairly nasty towards the brothers who made up their rhythm section. He's talking about bassist Quinn Matthews and his brother, drummer Scott Matthews. Supposedly, they quit the band prior to recording their first EP after Scott and Gibby had a physical altercation. Yeah. A uh, fairly notorious story, which hopefully will be covered in the, their upcoming documentary. Uh, the, but there are demos, Ryan, that have floated around from 1982 as a bootleg, recorded July of 82 at Total Access with Spot. Uh, here's Joe again. We had, we had our hands full, so it didn't really matter to us. We had no plans for them, really. I wish now we would have been able to jump on all the projects that Spot, Spot worked on. He was touring with Black Flag, so was known by the bands around the country and trusted as someone who wouldn't remake a band's sound. This was probably all in late 1982. So it just got me thinking, like, you know, when we talked to Mugger, he mentioned that there was talk of them signing suicidal tendencies. Yep. Uh, Spot around that time produced the Misfits Earth AD, Earth AD record in 1983. Like... I'm I'm just it'd be curious to know what would have happened if SST would have had the capital to to put some of this stuff out, you know? Yeah. And the time and the manpower, but the capital first and foremost, you know. I bet you if they had the money, Greg would have found a way to get it done. Yeah. He also mentioned that his early foray into recording his brother Mark's band from high school has been released. It's Midnight nineteen seventy five is the name of the record, and Midnight is spelt like M-I-D-K-N-I-G-H-T. Mm. 75 to 76, uh, Feeding Tube Records, released last year. It's live and practice tapes that survived. So it's like an archival re- release. Uh, Joe told me his brother has resumed playing with some of the band and also with Mike Watt through the mail. Yeah. Not email. <laughs> through Oh, through the mail. Yeah. Not like file transfers? <laughs> no. Through the mail. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was thinking this is kind of like a three-layer cake type of Watt proj, but no, through the mail. Nice one. Yep. Here's what Joe said. Midnight were an instrumental band doing what you might now call prog rock. They were into Hendrix, Hawkwind, King Crimson, and were doing some music theory classes. They were in high school and broke up as they all graduated and went went their different ways. I recorded some of their live gigs with Mark's four-track machine. I did the live side... The practice side was done by them by themselves when they had a better drummer and a second guitarist. I had moved to Hollywood by then 
and they ended late 1976. So I want to track that down. It's super limited. Um, it was mas like mastered at the blasting room for this reissue. Definitely want to track that down. So that's, uh, that's my Joe Carducci spiel. Thanks to Joe for kind of filling in a few blanks there. I wanted to mention this documentary that I saw this week, Ryan. It's good, hey? Yeah, you've seen it. Oh, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Punk the Capital, Building a Sound Movement, Washington, D.C., 76 to 83, by James June Schneider, Paul Bischow, and Sam Levine. It, re it really dials in on the early first wave pre-revolution summer. Slicky Boys, some early band bands, zine writers, radio show hosts, Don Ziantara. You get to see his inner ear tape vault. Yeah, Madam's Organ. Yep. Yep, Skip Groff, Yesterday and Today. Big focus on the Bad Brains, uh, HR and some of the members. Of course, Henry and Ian, but also Alec Mackay, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Ball, Jeff Nelson, Brian Baker, Lyle Presler, Chris Haskett. Some amazing footage of David Byers' band, The yeah. Enzymes. Who I, I know, right? Yeah. As Henry points out in the documentary, zero recorded output. I'm not even, you know... Sure, there's like a demo even. And I don't know if we knew this when we talked about David Byers, but Chris Haskett was actually a member of the Enzymes. Yeah, I'm not sure either if we knew that at the time. Yeah, as you mentioned, big focus on this early punk squat, Madam's Organ, which mm -hmm. the scene revolved around in like 1979. Just punks, hippies, bikers, all these weirdos. Joe Keithley talks a fair amount. DOA played at Madam's Organ, so that's awesome. It's about one and a half hours long, uh, and the entire first half is all pre-1980. Really focuses on bad brains and their significance and in influence on what would come next. Yeah, it's a great complement to the Salad Days documentary, as well as the Positive Force documentary. If you have those three, yeah. you're, and the Dance of Days book, you've got a really good understanding of the DC scene. It kind of sets the table for, for what came next. Yeah, for sure. Hey, so Ryan, next week is our 200th episode. Right on. So listen, I have a challenge for you. <laughs> oh, God. I want you, and I'm going to do the same, to pick five albums uh -huh. of, of the last 100 yeah. episodes, albums, that blew you away. Five. And here's the, there's a catch though. Mm -hmm. No fire hose, no descendants, <laughs> no Sonic Youth, no Minutemen, no Bad Brains, no Black Flag, no Husker Du, no Meat Puppets. Okay, that's the that's catch. A, yeah, that's not hard at all. Okay, I probably should put Screaming Trees on that list, but I take them off. Take them off. Let's make it. Let's make it harder for ourselves. Take the I trees mean, off too. Take the trees off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's, because I mean, you know. Part of what we want to do here is highlight those bands, of course, but all the bands that aren't those bands. So let's do that. Okay, trees are on the list too then. Of prohibited. Of prohibited bands. Prohibited bands, okay. Okay, there's your challenge. That's it for me, Ryan. Easy, I like that challenge. Okay. All right, so as I mentioned last week, my spiel is on books, some bookage. And my first one relates to the Butthole Surfers. So I noticed two new books uh, that I wasn't aware of before. The first one is by the Butthole Surfers, but both are out on this uh, publisher, Melodic Virtue Books. 
Um, they're both by this author, Aaron Tanner, who seems to be the main author on melodic virtue. He has either authored or co-authored books by Ministry, Face to Face, The Pixies. But now there is another book by the Butthole Surfers out here. I've mentioned the uh, the James Burns book before on the Butthole Surfers. And, and just you talking about those recording sessions with Spot, it makes me wonder whether that James Burns book actually got into that. I got to go check that out. It's been a while. But um, this Butthole Surfers book is called What Does Regret Mean? It comes with a limited run production of the long out of print 48 page zine Strange VD. And it's it's uh, a photo book like a, uh, a coffee table book, but a fully authorized visual history and includes interviews or anecdotes from Kim Thale, Thurston Moore, Lee Ronaldo, Al Jorgensen, Dale Crover, Henry Rollins, Chris Kirkwood, Derek Bostrom, Steve McDonald, David Yao, the list goes on and on and on. Looks like a really cool book. Mm -hmm. um, I think but, that uh, one's been out for a while. It's just now coming out in paperback, I believe. Uh, you're right. And that's what I mean. Like, I just noticed it. And I think the reason that I found my way to it is because the other book uh, that I wanted to mention that's also coming out is on the residence. It's mm -hmm. called a sight for sore eyes volume one also by Aaron Tanner, a visual history with unprecedented access to the cryptic corp archives. Of course, uh, another coffee table book looks really cool. I wasn't really hip to this publisher melodic virtue. It looks like they put out some good stuff interested in checking those out. Yeah, I liked their Facebook page a while ago, so I've seen a lot of this stuff pop up, but a ah. uh, little out of my price range. So maybe I'll check check out that Buttholes book now that it's paperback. In paperback. Yeah, like yeah, uh, I, pretty limited too, I think, in its first run. Mm. Yeah, it's not on Amazon, so you had to order di direct from them. Yeah. Out of your price range, yet you did a Hozak order. Yeah. <laughs> Hozak is like the the most impossible one to buy from. I want all of their books. I know. But I've got to save up my allowance for like half a year. I know. All right. Three other books I wanted to point out. And these are out on Tumbled Leather Publishing. Now, here, I think Volume 1 has been out for a while as well. But I just kind of noticed these three and I wanted to mention them. They're called Record Aficionado. Now, that kind of sounds like goldmine records or some sort of you know hip 2020 you know vinyl collecting guidebook but it's not uh volume one it as i said it's been out for a while but it covers the u.s hardcore punk scene from 78 to 85 it's 140 pages of reviews and picks looks pretty diy but also looks really really cool volume two brant covers Revelation Records exclusively, 1987 to 1991. Wow. At 152 pages, looks really cool. And then Volume 3, which the latest, this is, I think, the one that triggered me finding out about this publisher and this book series, U.S. Hardcore Punk, 85 to 90, continuing on from Volume 1 at 180 pages. It's impossible to get Volume 1 anymore, but Volume 2 and 3 are still available. I would say definitely worth checking out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I wonder if the Where It Went guys have covered that Rev book yet. I bet you, I bet they have. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Sus I I was just thinking of that because uh, I know you were spieling about how cool that podcast was, and this would be a great accompaniment to it. Mm -hmm. 
Finally, on the bookage front, Ira Robbins has put out two new books. And Ira, of course, is uh, of the Trouser Press fame. We reference the Trouser Press books all the time on the show here because no one else was really covering and collecting the underground music reviews like Ira was uh, back in the day in the 80s and 90s and the 70s. His new book is called Music in a Word, Volume 2. Now, I was aware of his Volume 1. Volume 1 is all over the place, ranging from mainstream to some underground. It was a little bit unfocused for me. It was subtitled Learning to Write, 1972 to 1997. But here's why Volume 2 caught my attention. Because it's a more focused collection of his works into chapter form, organized by featured artists as follows. He's got a chapter on The Who, Cheap Trick, Nirvana, Elvis Costello, Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, and The Clash, and finally, and best of all, The Replacements. Mm. So, volume two, uh, Music in a Word, Ira Robbins, and it's huge. I've got it in the mail. It's like as big as an, an encyclopedia. Wow. So, worth checking out for sure. Right on, man. Now, you, you did a bit of uh, a scoop on the new Vulgate, which is totally legit. I'm glad you did that because um, it's important that people check out Joe's work and the oil tasters and, and the uh, the Splunge communication site. I was going to point that out as well as another online article, though, on Legsville.com. Do you know Legsville? Legs McNeil site? Okay. I know the Please Kill Me site. Yeah. This one's called Legsville.com. It's a bit, it raised a bit of a question mark for me, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But there is an article there called Black Flag Anatomy of a Lawsuit by Keith Morris, as told by Legs McNeil. I just saw it, and it's copyright 2022. Huh. It's, inter- it's interesting, though, because it seems like an old interview or an old article, but it, again, it says copyright 2022. It goes through. A bunch of the material that's covered in Jim Rulin's excellent book, My Damage. And it has a plug at the end of the article for the book, My Damage, but it doesn't really mention Jim at all, like explicitly. So um, I'm here to correct that. But it's an interesting uh, short form version of, you know, how Keith met Greg, started in Flag, moved to the Circle Jerks, and then the reunion shows and lawsuit gong shows that followed Um, but it's interesting on legsville the thing about this legsville site that's worth uh, pointing out is there is just a ton of cool articles on this page i i really didn't uh know of its existence worth checking out but of course specifically for this keith morris article that i would say if if i were to tell people to read this keith morris article i would say Go ahead and read it, but definitely get Jim Rulin's book as well. Yeah. Cool, man. I'll check it out. So that's it, man. Do you want to uh, go swim with the fishes and vegetables on this record now? (laughs) Yeah. History Lesson, Part 1. Okay, so this is a really cool record. I always marvel at when I listen to a record I've heard before. I haven't heard this one a ton before, I will admit, but I've heard it before. But now I listen to it, of course, getting ready for the show much more deeply and man what a great record and you talk about this with bobby about how there's just some amazing stuff on it Um, but you know we're back with the band here kyle kirk and craig johnson terry fisher 
and Bobby Jocelyn. And uh, what's the best way to tee us up for diving into the interview, Brent? Well, I'll give you a little history lesson here. Right on. Okay. Uh, Run Westy Run, formed in 1984 by three brothers from St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Kirk Kyle and Craig Johnson, along with Terry Fisher and Tommy Martin. Kirk on vocals, Craig on bass, Kyle on guitar, Terry on lead guitar, and after three gigs, Bobby Jocelyn on drums. Mm-hmm. Craig and Kyle would also switch up, you know, bass and, and guitar at times, but Craig was primarily the bassist. Kyle was primarily the rhythm guitarist. Craig and Terry met in high school and had a band called The Portables. Kyle and Kirk were in New York and later San Francisco with their band The Young Cherries, and after moving back to the Twin Cities, they joined forces. You'll hear a bit more in the interview about how Bobby Jocelyn came into the band and what he was doing pre-Run Westy Run. In 1986, they released a three-song single on Grant Hart's short-lived Tontine label. After signing with SST, they released 1988's Hardly Not Even as SST 192. Uh, And as Ryan mentioned, you can go back and hear our chat with Terry Fisher, if you like. And shortly after that, also 1988, this self-titled record. Back to Back is a badass fact, Ryan. Ooh, Chili Peppers reference. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Which song? Uh, Magic Johnson. Does anybody want some? Yep. Okay, so for Hardly Not Even, they recorded 21 songs at Nicolette Studios in Minneapolis with Steve Felstead Engineering and Grant Hart and Peter Buck producing. You can hear us talk a little bit more about Nicolette in that Hardly Not Even episode, so I'm not going to go any further into that. Eleven of those songs were used for Hardly Not Even, and six more made up the A-side of this release. Those six weren't mixed during those sessions, or if they were, they were remixed uh, by Wally Fleming at Gark Studios for this release. The the sparse liner notes on this LP uh, say remixed. So, uh, Gark has a, a cool history. They a bunch of bands recorded there: Trip Shakespeare, Diamanda Gallus, uh, Twin Tone Band that Bobby mentions, the Magnolias, mm-hmm. the Cows, Cunning Stunts was recorded there. Classic. Season, Absolute classic. Season to Risk. Tons oh, more. Love it. Uh, and you'll hear a bit more about that from Bobby right away here. The B-side is from a separate session at a studio called Mirror Image in Minneapolis, engineered by Bill Bailey and Ron Parker. Uh, also, The Cows recorded at Mirror Image, Vertigo, Halo of Flies, Otto's Chemical Lounge. Terry told me he had a great time at Mirror Image, um, lots more time in the studio, so more opportunities for guitar overdubbing, which you can definitely hear. Oh, yeah. On the B-side of this. This came out on LP, CD, and cassette, and the CD tracks tack on the three songs from the single. And uh, after this album came out, Bobby left the band and was replaced by Daniel Davis on drums. But what I didn't know, and you'll hear in the interview, is he came back into the band. Should we kick it over to Bobby? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bobby Joslin. Bobby, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, so we're talking about the self-titled Run Westy Run record, but I want to go backwards first. Did you grow up in St. Louis Park like the the brothers? Uh, I grew up in South Minneapolis, but I ended up trying to hang out in St. Louis Park with the uh, the Wilson brothers, Matt and Dan Wilson of Trip Shakespeare, 
and uh, Semisonic. Jimmy Harry was another guy who's a big producer nowadays, but I kind of jumped into that scene in the early 80s before I even knew any of those guys in the Westies. Uh, when did you start playing drums? I started playing probably about when I was 10 years of age. I got a little drum set that Grandpa bought for me, and then I ended up getting a paper route at about 11, and that made it so I could take the drums out at night and go play. Oh, you know, because you can't really play drums inside the house that much. They bother people. So I'd throw them in my little paper cart and go play outside the, uh, the Minnesota Twins Vikings Stadium out at night at, like, you know, midnight on a Saturday night because I wouldn't have to be to my paper route till like, 3 in the morning so I could drop my, play out at night and drop my drums off and then go to my paper route. So that, that was pretty fun to play outside in the stars, you know. under the, Nobody was outside at that time. There was no games. I just kind of set up and tucked in a coffee sack next to the stadium so I get some reverb out of it, which is pretty funny. I think no. I got caught by somebody. You know? <laughs> what what kind of music were you connecting to? You know, in your teenage years, and like, what kind of bands were you going to see? Um, I was, uh, of course, big into Montrose. Uh, yes, was big in our world at that time. Uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar Rock Opera was really great. And then, of course, that turned us on to Deep Purple because Ian Gillian was the singer. Right. And then, of course, uh, the, pretty quickly was that uh, great band from Canada called Rush. Right. was a big influence on a lot of us. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so what was like your first band that was doing original music? Oh, that was a band called uh, uh, Outpatients, we were called. It's kind of it was a punk band. We started in about the 80s, 81, and uh, basically the music was kind of like Stiff Little Fingers meets The Clash. Because hmm. by, by this time, we were, you know, we knew everything. We were into punk rock, alternative rock, mm-hmm. uh, as well as, you know, the Rush and the Van Halen and stuff like that. We still always liked our hard rock. Did you, like, record and release stuff? Uh, there was just like a live cassette, I think, you know, our gigs. We, we played the 7th Street Entry at that time, so we were... This is probably about 81, so it's really the old 7th Street entry. Uh, John, you know, the, uh, John Freeman from the uh, Magnolias was actually one of the songwriters in the band. And then the other lead writer was Kip Overbow. So basically you had, you know, your clash elements there, the two leaders. But Kip's songs stood, stood out more. And then we had a bass player myself. But it was, it was like, you know, you know, like Green Day, too, that, so that type of punk. Okay without the fake English accent stuff. <laughs> right. Did you see, like, Craig and Terry's band, The Portables? Yeah, I saw them, uh, when did they come out? About, they later, about 84-ish, 83-ish. Did you see Run, Westy, yeah, Run before you were in the band? Uh, Run, Westy, Run, see, I think it was a third gig, and it was in 85. No, it was uh, early 86. Uh, Jimmy Harry took me to see them. So they need a drummer, and, was, and there's, there's three brothers in the band. I thought, oh, these guys are cool. And, of course, I thought the coolest one was Kyle because he just looked so cool. He's like the Malcolm Young of the band, and he just had a natural, uh, that kind of rock star look about him without trying to be, and you know, the kind of Keith Richards look in a way. So Jimmy hooked me up with them. They had a gig coming up pretty quickly, and I don't know why they were getting rid of the drummer at the time. He's a great guy, great drummer, Tommy Martin. So I learned like 19 songs in about a week. We played one event. 
they kind of took off from there. I had some studio time that I had accumulated because by then I'm doing commercial work. So I'm getting paid, you know, to play on commercials and I'm getting paid in, in the cash and uh, studio time. Hmm. And I just gotten off the road with Charlie Pickett. I don't know if you know who Charlie Pickett I do. is. Yeah. That's where I really cut my teeth on the road in 85 with Charlie. We just got off a tour. It was about a month long tour. It was supposed to go longer, but something happened with booking. Charlie Pickett and so the eggs. every. <laughs> yep, Charlie Pickett and the eggs. Yep. Yeah, I have his records. We were the tail I probably end. have records that you played on, maybe even. Um, I only played on one, so it was the Twin Tone one, Route uh, 33. Yep, I have it. It's a great record. Yeah, it's, I think it's just like three songs I played on, and then I got to. Uh, play on one with Mo Tucker, add a little bit of snare on top of something. So that was really cool to work with Mo Tucker. Mm-hmm. And then we picked up lead guitar players. We went out as a three-piece, and Charlie knows so many lead players. We picked up a lead guitarist every six gigs somewhere in the States and ended up down in Alabama area. And he knew I was a big REM fan, but he didn't tell me he knew those guys. So after we did a sound check uh, somewhere, I think Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Thought we were going out to eat, but we were actually going over to the local basketball court stadium type thing to go see REM. And uh, Minutemen were opening up for him. Uh, yep. So Michael Stipe sent everybody over to our show after, you know, their awful audience because we're playing the bar. So our place is just jam packed. Steve Boone becomes our lead player for about six gigs. Peter Buck jumps in sometimes, but Peter's happy, uh, just as happy to be guitar tech. Yeah. It's just pretty funny. So we got to meet those guys and uh, spent some good time with them. And I think it was D. Boone's last uh, tour ever, so I was a big fan of them as it was anyway. So, And then George Hurley and I, of course, became friends really fast. And then later down the line, I would run into George Hurley and uh, other bands he was in later. So, By the time you get hooked up with the Westies, you're a road dog already. Yeah, a bit, yeah. I was in a, a band pre, uh, you know, Oh, 82, 83, 84, called Kindergarten, which was more like movie soundtrack, dance, uh, industrial-type music. And that band actually did pretty well, especially in France and Germany. We made three EPs. Uh, New York, Chicago, some of the bigger clubs would play our stuff. The scratching was coming in at that time, so people would send two two EPs. They're always 45, you know, uh, RPMs, 12 inches. DJs would scratch one and run the other one kind of thing. So that was pre-Charlie Pickett. That band was actually really cool also. So we got a little bit of road journeys with that band. Some smaller jaunts, not big tours. uh, Okay, so you mentioned you had some some cash saved up. I'm assuming you funded the Dizzy Road single? Yeah, that was a whole session. It's, you know, studio uh, time in cash payment. Uh, I was thinking about bringing the kindergarten back in, bringing Charlie Pickett back in uh, prior to record full length, whatever they wanted. Then then uh, the engineer, Charlie, said, hey, why don't we try to bring in that Run West to Run band? Let's give that a shot. Let's, you know, you got eight hours. Mm-hmm. You got, we got like tw- 21 songs, 19 to 21 songs, pretty much 19 songs, and then a couple other ones which just became studio jams. So they like, all right, let's do that. We, could, we couldn't see each other at all. We are all in different rooms completely, <laughs> but, we, but we we laid it down and it was pretty great. Yeah. And I managed to save the tapes and and uh, and protect them uh, with a guy named Monty Lee Wilkes. I don't know if you know Monty; he's quite the famous uh, tour manager, sound guy. He's long gone, passed away. He's do Nirvana and 
early Britney Spears and stuff. But him and I, he digitized, and we we uh, there's only t- two tracks, so it's a ten inch reel, so it's quarter inch okay. reel. Yeah, so it's very thin, so it's basically stereo. So we saved those, and we edited about a 19 song album together, which I was gonna talk to the boys about releasing later on when we got into that our reunion. With, but we can get on to that later because Kyle was still alive. Right, right. But we didn't get in, in on those talks yet on that. So mm. so I still have it. It's all safe and sound. Now, some of these are tracks that you, I'm assuming, re-recorded for the, for the two SST records? Yeah. Uh, I think I have earlier versions. Well, the Dizzy Road versions. Or what's, what's on the CD, those three songs at mm-hmm. the very end of the CD we're talking about, self-titled, yep. are from those sessions. It's, I think there's a version of Mop It Up on there, an old one. Uh, we burned out the original Dizzy Road on the reel so bad it's that uh, luckily we had a second version we did. Uh, so if we do release it, it release it, it's going to be a different Dizzy Road version because the other one, the fidelity is so terrible because we enjoyed it so much we just played it over and over, you know. Right. But at least we have that on, on a second reel. We had the uh, a newer version of Dizzy. Dizzy Road, which has basically a different guitar solo on it, but it's still really cool. Okay, so at some point, Grant Hart comes into the picture and releases the, the single on his label. Yeah, I read about an article that he was starting a record label in our uh, mag- uh, magazine called the Sweet Potato, which is Tree City Pages. And he already, had, I think he had released something by Novo Mob. Mm-hmm. And I asked the boys if they want to go talk to Grant about maybe putting this album out, and nobody's really interested. So, well, I'm. I'll go do it then. Guys, oh, go ahead. All right, fine. So I never met Grant, but uh, Steve Felstead, our engineer, I'd already worked with Steve Felstead probably a dozen times, even before Westy stuff. He was our go-to engineer in town. Mm-hmm. So I uh, got a hold of Grant and uh, going to meet over at his studio office. And he was a bit late, so I was hanging out with Bob Mould. I was kind of having a conversation with Bob, asking if he, if he knew of any places, uh, you know, if I can get a few uh, club numbers in the Midwest that he thinks our you know, band can play in. And he gave me, like, a whole uh, notepad. He says, here, take this home with you. Copy all these numbers. You guys can play any one of these clubs around the whole country, you know. <laughs> like, wow. Just bring it back to me, but you can copy them all off. Yeah. Luckily, I saved, I saved those because uh, later on, we had Lori Barbero would be our manager, booking agent. They helped her out. So anyway, we, me and Grant talked about it. I gave, uh, geez, I think we had a little six-song cassette going. So he hadn't even heard all the rest of it. So he decided to do uh, Dizzy Road as the uh, one side and the other two songs on the other side. It was going to cost like $1,000, but he paid 500 if we paid 500 So I quickly set up a gig with uh, Steve McClellan from First Avenue, because I already good with him anyway. He gave us like two opening slots, which usually pay like $50, right. but he gave them, paid us $250 for each slot. For, it was for uh, Alex Chilton, I think is what it was for. Okay. If somebody intercepted the money and handed me 100 I'm like, no, no, I need the whole thing goes to Grant, because we got to press this single up. Well, that didn't work out, but luckily I had money in the bank. So, because I was working at the hockey arena at that time, which was also a concert hall, 
you know, so I was getting to be around the biggest bands in the world and the Minnesota North Shore hockey team. But I always had work going on. I could go on tours and still have my job back, which is a great place to grow up, especially as a musician. For sure. I was getting autographed albums like crazy. I'm talking Michael Shaker, Cozy Powell, the guys from ACDC. Wow. I was a dressing room attendant, so I was in charge of locking the room up when they go on stage. And then clean the room for them or bring them whatever they needed. And they'd always mess with me and have fun, you know, with me and right. little rock and roll kid. Come on in here, mate, and have a puff of this, and have a drink of this, you know. So that that was a great place to grow up. But anyway, so we put it out on Tontine on Grant's label and gave Lori Barbero of Babes in Toyland. Mm-hmm. She hadn't started the band yet, but I'd, uh, I'd asked her to come in and help us, and the guys were cool about it. Let's make her the manager, booking agent, you know, because it's better. You know, I can do it too, but Lori's better at it. And uh, we just concentrate on the music and our, you know, jobs and stuff. Right. So she sent out about 200 of those little singles. And I know she sent one to Greg from Black Flag. I'm sure Grant had his hands on that too. So between Grant and Lori, that's what got Greg's attention on us. If I'm remembering the story right that Terry told us, Peter Buck saw you at the Uptown Bar and really latched onto the song Mop It Up. Well, Peter came up, we were playing at the 400 Bar, and I saw Peter walking with Grant, and I thought, well, I haven't seen Peter since Charlie Pickett days. So after our set, I'm going, hey, Peter, what brings you up here? Because I heard you were in this band now. Like, oh, I didn't know it was even that on your radar that way. So... Him and Grant had some kind of conversation, and I didn't know Grant at all. I I knew Peter before I knew Grant, even though Grant lives here. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you want to produce uh, the new record with us? And I was only joking. He says, yeah, I was thinking about it. I'm going, oh, okay. <laughs> There's no joke here. <laughs> so then, you know, Gary Greg sent us a contract. We had two contracts. We had to look at the Twin Tone one and the SST one, and the SST one just crushed the Twin Tone one financially, control. I mean, it was all, the band gets 100% control mm-hmm. of everything. The SST contract was just an amazing, straight to the point, three-page little contract where the Twin Tone was a mishmash of, you know, language and lingo, and they own a bunch of the percentage of your rights to your songs at the end of it. They get to choose the song to tell you where you record it, and, their budget was not very good at all. Twin, uh, SST had, had a great budget for us. Mm-hmm. Really nice budget. Actually, it's like I think it was like sixty five hundred bucks right out of the gates. Wow! So then we got we did recorded it at Nicholas Studios A, which by then I'd also been doing a lot of commercial work out of there. Not only commercial work, but just demos of people because Prince had a presence. So all the major labels were in town with their looking for the newest, coolest person. Right. So I would be that go-to drummer. You know, I'd be getting $100 cash per song completed. You know, they'd be like an acoustic guy with a quick track, and i just have to play it on top of it, behind it, after they finish it, then they can chop it and edit it all they want. This is after Purple Rain so, came out, I'm assuming? Yeah, this would be about that time. Yep. Yeah. So then we, uh, Grant, Bob, and Steve Galstead, leased that studio so they technically were the three owners of our our studio time but the uh first initial check the 3200 take a little little dirty here kind of little dirty dealings uh grant got the first check and uh didn't pay the, the other two guys their one third decided to spend it on other stuff mm. 
So uh, when we were doing the sessions, people were coming and going. The door would open. We're right in the middle of tracking. People were coming in to buy some some drug stuff, you know, because we had a bad reputation at that time. I don't know if you guys know. My band had a very hard uh, heroin habit reputation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not myself, but it wasn't my thing because I'd seen it around. You know, I just was never... I've been around a while, so I'm just like, you know, come on, you guys. So that caused a lot of problems. So eventually got my tracks done within two days. And then I would come in from time to time to check on the mixing process. But the studio was too crowded with hanger honors and stuff. Right. You know, that this grant session basically is the producer, you know, friends, and everybody wanted to see Peter. We didn't, you know, they didn't know him, but a lot of hanger honors. Steve Elstead wasn't too happy about that. But yeah. And then after we completed it, then uh, Bob Moe calls me up says, I'm taking the tapes uh, because I'm waiting for the other half of the money. And as soon as Greg sends me the other half of the money, then I'll release them to Greg because here's the situation. Mm. Uh, me and Steve didn't get our initial money. And I'm like, oh, that's cool because the other money wasn't supposed to come until six months later. But Greg sent it right away. So, And I, I technically was dealing with Greg on the contract parts. Right. Yeah, boy, he treated us good. This this record we got right now, he was offered us ten thousand dollar advance, and of course, one hundred percent control. He says, "Go, like, oh, you know, guys, this is great. This, you know, I'm just, I'm not even having to ask him for any. What do you think? I'm just call, talking about how? What do you think for a budget for this one? Oh, I'm thinking about giving you this much. I'm going, oh wow, okay. So I told the boys, okay, here's how that would work, guys. What do you, because it's too expensive to go into that big studio again. But we took some outtakes of the first sessions and of course put them on the second album. You know, the whole first six songs are technically outtakes because we had to use something because here's how that worked out. So there's a, an attorney that decided he's going to be our attorney that we met with, but we never said he's going to be our attorney. And he ended up calling Greg and getting the money, but he only got like $4,000 and this guy calls me up and says, hey, I got your money. You go, wait a minute. How, who told you? To, how do you got our money? Well, I, t- I just talked to Greg, you know, and, you know, told him, and, and, uh, you guys didn't need 10000 you know, you don't need to be put that far in debt. So I got you 4000 But who told you to do that? I'm asking <laughs> this guy. Right. Well, it's like somebody did in the band, and I kind of have an idea who did. You know, it's starting to get real goofy. So this gives us, he took his... 10%, four and a buck, because it's 3,600 bucks now. So we have to go, now we have to use the outtakes, and we have to go to a, uh, the lesser studio. Well, my plan was to take go to the lesser studio anyway and put $5,000 down. We'll only spend 2,500, but we got 20, my buddies will hold 2,500 in their bank, so the guys can't get it for their drug use. Mm-hmm. And then when the next 5,000 comes, then I'd just be like, pass it out to everybody. Here you guys go, $1,000 bonus for everybody. And guess what? We still have 2500 in the bank account over with these guys safe and sound. So we could either keep it there, split it up, you know, or start recording with it, or just have it as a backup, you know? Right. Because there was more to come. And for the third album, Greg is even going to go higher. So. Okay, so we'll get to that in a minute. Album. I, I want to know about the third album, but so this lesser studio that you're you're talking about, this is Mirror Image. Yeah, Mirror Image. It was uh, it's in the basement of like 
mini mansion type house in our uptown area. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great place. Top notch. Couple of engineers: Bill Bailey, Ron Parker. Uh, I think the initial tracks we did were eight tracks for uh, what was the songs? Have to pull it out here. Which we did some songs with Ron. I got the record here, but doesn't even have the doesn't have the titles on it. it just yeah. says. Number one nine nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The record jacket is really sparse. There's not a lot of info on there. Yeah, I don't have one that actually has an official label. This is uh, one of the test pressings. Oh, I see. But anyway, a, couple, uh, a few of those songs were done eight track, and then a few were done sixteen track. Um, I think like Black Ball is sixteen track. Whatever one came past Black Ball, I think the first four were eight tr- eight tracks. In the next two. For 16 track, and then it goes into Dizzy Road and those other little two track things, if I remember right. Kind of interesting, you chose to kind of put the Nicolette leftovers on side one and then the basement recordings, the mirror image recordings on side two. Yeah, it only, I think it just made sense because we did the first record and then this next one comes out, it kind of starts where it left off. Yeah, if I think if it wasn't so crazy in the studio for the first one, some of those songs, like Mop It Up and stuff, would have made it on the first album. Yeah, I was going to say when you first... when you say that when you say leftovers, they I mean those are great songs. Do you think when you hear them now, do you think of them as leftovers? Oh, actually, no. I, I you know maybe you should say more like uh, oh, we could have done better takes of them. Ah, I see I what you mean. Yeah, yeah. At the time, for sure, at the time. But no, I don't look at, at them actually as leftovers. Uh, they're still really great versions. Mm-hmm. For sure. And of course, the sound quality is a lot different compared to Grant's mix of the first one. The first one is very Hooster Do mix. No, it definitely has Grant's Hooster Do touch on it yeah. as far as the sound of things. So he didn't, he didn't mix these, the ones that you used for the self-titled. I'm assuming it was Wally Fleming at Gark who mixed those ones? Yeah, it was basically me, Wally, and uh, Craig um, at Gark Studios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it wasn't there. Yeah, it's just like the three of us, and it's, which made it so much easier. I was always kind of arguing with Wally to turn the drums down a bit and turn up that one guitar. Go figure, right? The drummer. Yeah. But Wally's like, no, guitars hurt my ears. <laughs> and like, so I still hear some guitars that are buried a little bit. But it's like, oh, they should be up there, man. So, so but who, the vocals came out nice and clear, and you know. Yeah. Who's Wally, and and what's Gark? Oh, Wally was our sound guy, live sound guy, and oh, Gark okay. was a recording studio started by Dave Pinsky, who ended up his career being with the Beastie Boys. Mm. He's a monitor guy forever with Beasties. He's retired now. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know, did you ever know that Adam Yelk from Beastie Boys wrote a movie script about us? About the band? About the Westies, yeah. Craig had a copy of it, and we all was just like, where is that? How did that and happen? How did he know about us? What's that? Yeah, how did that happen? Do you know how he knew about you? Yeah, what I found out was that suppose he heard of the band, heard of band, heard the records, and heard of the, the heavy drug use, and he wanted to. Uh, it's about this band that goes to New York, and a manager has to go from Minneapolis to New York to rescue them from themselves. <laughs> mm. I heard Dennis Hopper was the guy up for uh, being our manager. And I saw the script and the, the locations they had for us in Minneapolis, and I was like, wow, 
that's pretty flattering, you know. Did that happen? What you just described? <laughs> oh no, the movie never never happened. No, no, the the manager coming up to New York to rescue you from yourselves. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, that's a band. Well, people thought they could rescue the band at points, mm-hmm. but eventually, uh, you know. Uh, well, with this album, we went on, on tour and we were out at the New Music Seminar in New York City. What, 88 was it? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a really hot, hot, hot summer. And I paid the extra money to be part of the seminars. So I had a pass that would get me to everything. Right. All the panels, all the parties. The boys stayed in Staten with needles in their arms. I'm like, come on, you guys, come with me. Spend your 50 bucks and we're going to run around manhattan for five days and have a great time but they didn't so they stayed up there and i just jumped on the, the boat and headed into the city by myself and ran into uh kurt from information society remember them yep right right away i ran into him he's skating roller skating down the street with his big old mohawk and then he sees me and stops and says what are you doing here <laughs> so he said well i'm in for the seminar thing and we got like four gigs in this town and Capitol Records is going to sign us this weekend. They're throwing a party for us, and, and that's going to be great. And I ran into Steve McClellan, who would run First Avenue. Of course, he had to be out there because he's part of the seminar. And, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Harry and uh, God, all these great musicians I got to meet, go to panels with Keith Morris sitting next to uh, Marvin Gaye, or no, it was Al Green <laughs> doing seminars, <laughs> answering questions. You know, MTV was big then, so all the MTV characters were there. And yeah. Went, went on killer parties in the Staten Island boat, courtesy Capitol Records, where they smuggled New Model Army in from England into America because they were banned from America. <laughs> but they smuggled them in, and they played this killer party. Uh, Skinny Puppy was waiting for us on the other end. We're on the Staten Ferry, and also all these explosions and all the concerts on the ferry shut down and now skinny puppies being pumped into every speaker. People are freaking out thinking this is the end of the line. It's like, no, this is the party and beer. Capital paid skinny puppy all this money to give us this show and they're on land, but we stay on the boat, you know? So it was just a mind blowing time uh, at that time. But then my boys showed up for the Capitol party and uh, all pin eyed and, like, you guys, how are you going to keep up to me? I mean, we can't slow these songs to slow, slow. Mm-hmm. So we just adjusted, and we chased everybody out of the room. And Capitol Records said, see you later. <laughs> I'm like, Steve McClellan was there as, you know, kind of our mentor, because he was anyway. I'm like, Steve, what happened? But we're Tim Cargo with all the people. He says, yeah, those guys are too messed up. Mm-hmm. Just want nothing to do with you guys. <laughs> and then that happened down the road a little bit later when I wasn't in the band with A&M Records, so we're supposed to sign a deal with A&M, and uh, the, the guy signed him was wondering, where is everybody? Went out to the van, there they are, shooting up in the van. So, so they went, see ya. I'm like, you guys, come on. I mean, we're, we're notorious for that now. By this point, you know, we're called Run Junkie Run. Mm. <laughs> so it was getting volatile, and then yeah. people were, everybody wants in on your train, you know, and then had some groupies that wanted to be the bosses of our band, you know, manage us and say, no, girlfriend problems. And one guy's girlfriend hated Lori Barbero. So it's like, we had to get rid of Lori. And I didn't like, nobody was, which one of our members had bad one. And like, no, we're not kicking Lori out. And, you know, but we had to, or he would quit. And, mm. and this other manager that tried to push her away in 
claimed she worked for Billy Idol and she managed him while she cut his hair sometimes. But uh, that was just a con. She wanted in on the drugs and stuff. And pretty much then our singer child, Turkey, said, I can't hit him out with Bob. When I called a meeting about, hey, Greg's going to give us 15000 for this next record. This is the third. Oh, this is the guys, third. Yeah. This is the third one you're talking about. Yeah, this would be the third one that never happened. Yeah. And then Kirk says, "I can't be in a band with Bob anymore." And then Kyle says, "Yeah, because you're a girlfriend." Well, they don't get along. Yeah, she doesn't get along with anybody. That's why Lori had to go because she's a girlfriend. So that troublemaking girlfriend stuck around for a while. I was out, and then she ended up running off to another band. After that, kicking Kirk to the curb and going to a band that was actually making some serious money that I won't mention the platinum band. So she got her way <laughs> eventually. And, and you, we all got back together eventually as a group. But Right. Do you think the, the, the fact that you were, you know, uh, not partaking in, in certain substances contributed to you leaving the band? Well, yeah, you, you know, I, I wasn't the cool guy, of course. If you don't do the cool drugs, you're not the cool guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, except for, you know, Kyle was heavy into it. It really, he was a real natural rock star junkie. But when we wanted to get his shit together, he'd come stay with me at my place. And him and I always stayed pals. And because he had no ego, and it, it just seemed to be normal for him. It didn't really affect anything he did. The other guys never looked right. And I would give him, you know, crap bugs. Like, you guys don't look right, put needles in your arm. They get offended because, you know, you want to be cool, man. You know, because this is an artsy scene that was around us, and we had a lot of. The hanger honors were, you know, the lowest of the low. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, a go getter, you know. And I, you know, so I, I've had work, and, you know, there's, there's always things would go missing all of a sudden in your dressing room. So, you know, our dressing room was the big party room all the time. And, and of course, you got people fighting over their drugs and who gets the most and all that. I'm like, geez, you guys. So, it, you know, and then it would kind of ruin my reputation for a while. Nobody would talk to me in our town. This is kind of how flaky it was. Bartenders wouldn't serve me right away. Unless I went in with Danny Murphy from Soul Asylum or Kyle or Dale T. Nelson, somebody like that, then, oh, then it was cool to talk to me because it was pretty sad that I got blacklisted like that. Mm-hmm. And I was up for the uh, replacements gig at one point, I guess, but people thought because... Well, they said because I was a junkie that no, I better not. Which is like that's bullshit, you guys. Because I was at their manager's house once for a, a barbecue that another musician threw at it, their manager's place, and and all the spoons were missing. And they blamed me when the guy got back into town. Where's all my spoons? I said my name. I I stole them. I'm like, why would he steal the spoons? He don't even do that stuff, you yeah. know. So I was a scapegoat for a lot of crap. But whatever, I got over it and. And uh, did other great things, you know. Mm-hmm. It went lesson in history, boy. It was the drugs that really stopped us from getting to that next level. But I don't think Kirk really wanted to get to that next level. Actually, it was Kirk more than anybody. Kind of the anti-rock star. Because he's a poet, you know, he's more than anything. Gotcha. But, he, but he's a great front man, you know, for sure. And a good singer, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what am I looking at on the cover of this this record? This Nick, this uh, Nick Wogstad photo. Well, that's uh, what's that? That's a uh, fish. Yeah. And that's fruit dyed fruit. I think looks like the the broccoli or the uh, cauliflower is dyed green, and the hand is Kirk's. So this is all Kirk's artwork. It's one hundred percent Kirk. Yeah. 
the first the first record we did is kind of a mixture of a lot of us. Uh, even uh, Nick Cave helped on uh, Hardly Not Even put that whole thing together. Oh, really? Because that du- yeah, that's called the Dookie City, and that car is uh, owned that little car is model Bad News Wagon from Ron Anderson, who's the original drummer from the Magnolias. Hmm. And that Dookie City we put together in a big warehouse. It's kind of warehouse shooting gallery for the junkies downtown, but uh, it's cardboard and it's just huge. It's on the floor and where everybody's just building stuff, you know, added to, you know, whoever wants to, you know, Grant did a lot of it. Of course, we had other artists, friends, junkie friends hanging out doing it too. And the great thing was Nick Cave was in town. So Nick Cave came over and added a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Even I couldn't tell you what he added compared to what I added or anybody else added, but right. But at the end of the day, all the artwork, of course, uh, Kirk approves of the artwork mm-hmm. and work with the photographer on this stuff. So that's all Kirk's baby there. Now, after you left the band, I have to ask you about playing with Sonny Vincent. He must have been living in the Twin Cities at that time because I, I think he played with Bob Stinson at the same time as you. Yeah. And you I know, know about I know, the I know, rest now. Yeah, I know Greg Norton was also in the band for a while with Sonny. Yeah, Greg wasn't in it when I was in it. It was me, Cheetah Carome, and Bob Stinson, and Mortz Bauman. Bob was in it briefly. Mm-hmm. That was actually really fun, because Cheetah Carome's the funnest guy to go on tour with. I've heard. But you know, we only <laughs> we just played Minneapolis. We came up to you guys for a little bit there in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I can't remember where we started. Maybe it was Winnipeg and headed east, of course. Then back down to Detroit. And this, there's some, the Stones were playing in Majestic Theater. We played in Majestic Theater with Ron Ashton's band from the Stooges. So we didn't have any equipment. We were actually traveling around in a stolen car. Yeah, <laughs> our bass player stole from his girlfriend. And she's like, where, where are you fuckers? Where's my car? You know? So I, I, I was along for the ride. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and uh, so we're just, Supposed to hang, play another gig in Wisconsin to close this little tour. It's just a little jaunt. I think about maybe 12 gigs at the most. And then the Stones were the, there the next day just as guests for a homeless kind of uh, uh, tribute, raising money for the homeless. And Cheetah really wanted to skip the gig in Milwaukee and stay because she's friends with you know Keith and Nick. Mm-hmm. And we would be having dinner with them, you know. And Sonny wouldn't let us do it, you know. And Cheetah's all mad because Sonny ain't giving us no money. <laughs> we each had, we had guarantees, and it's just blowing up left and right. But did you ever see that band? We had great costumes. No, I never did. We had really flashy uh, custom-made costumes <laughs> that, that are flammable as hell. <laughs> so uh, uh, they're great uh they're so great. We're up in Toronto and, you know, we're hanging out with some gals. We have a manager up there. I can't remember her name. And we're so, we stay, we stay with them. We get out of the vehicle the next day. Our car out of all the cars is the only car that got hit with the blackbird turds. <laughs> and we're like, How, why would that be? Oh, they saw us the flashy ass costumes, <laughs> you know, the shiny and gleamy and sparkly. And got us somehow through the night. You know? <laughs> Pretty intense. I think we played the Silver Dollar. I think we played, which mm-hmm. is a great place to play. Mm-hmm. What else did you do um, after after Run Westy Run? 
in about that time, you know, with the shotgun rationale thing, but I started doing production, uh, climbing concert steel and stagehand type stuff. Mm-hmm. So I basically went on Lollapalooza tours in about 91, I think. Shotgun rationale is also about that time. And doing the concert steel for Mountain Steel and uh, working stagehand for promoters, whoever the in-town promoter was, kind of jump on their train. So it was great. You know, I was hanging out with James Addiction and, and Chili Paps all the time. And, and, of course, Henry Rollins, I think, was on some of those. Yep. Butthole Surfers. Westy's kind of had a little brotherhood with the Butthole Surfers, which you always knew that was going to be <laughs> missing people. Yeah. <laughs> So then I started jumping on the, the big festival circuit as a steel climber. You know, uh, you, you get real, you're real strong. I mean, you're just got to be buff and not afraid of heights. And you, you, you just get fed well. You don't get hotels all the time. It's not the luxury of tour bus. But we had our little gang of guys that hung together. And, you know, you camp out. And then sometimes you pull your money for a shower if they didn't have them on sites and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, just kept doing that. Uh, big concert work like that, some studio stuff here and there, nothing significant, and then jumped on OzFest in the later 90s. OzFests are really tough because there's a lot more steel. It's always raining. Uh, it's just, you know, it's it's not as fun as Lollapalooza's because the Lollapalooza kids, they sit under trees and read books. Right. The OzFest <laughs> kids, they snort math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was fun hanging out with all the metalheads and Pantera and did get too close to Ozzy. Mm-hmm. There was a point where I was offered a job to drum for Marilyn Manson. Oh. My buddy Mark Chossie was the guitar player in the band. He was also a guitar player in his fight. Marilyn was looking to get another drummer in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to turn it down because that children coming pretty quickly. And, you know, how would that, you know, I'm going out with Manson, the devil, you know, and there's family court stuff you have to deal with. Right. Because our paycheck was incredible, of course. I mean, unbelievable. But I joined the union by then, the stagehand union. So, but I still continue to go on the, the bigger tours. And the, the country tours are really good, too, when you do the big country shows. Mm-hmm. Not a big country fan of the music, but it was starting to rock then. So it was always, the drummers were always rocking. Well, right. Alabama's drummer rocked. And, and, uh, and the people are the nicest in the world, you know. Backstage, you know, they're all just nice, the country folk. Mm-hmm. Then eventually I started my own production team in about 2006. Because we have a a really big casino here. It's the second uh, biggest tribal casino in the U.S. And I was working for for that team out there, uh, for production staff out there. And the boss man was not happy with a lot of the people that were coming in. Because, you know, we're dealing with meth heads and all that. And and a bunch of us kind of quit at the same time. And then the boss man somehow got my number and asked me where all the trick guys were. And I said, well, the pay rate's terrible. You'll get some of the clowns we have to deal with. You know, you know, this, our little troops of guys, we're just, we're the pros, man. And we can't mix in with these. And he told me to start my own company and all this stuff and bring in all my guys. And I, so I did. And I started handpicking my own stagehand crew, doubled the pay. And, uh, every, it's just great crew. So I became production manager of Mystic Lake Casino, independent crew. I was everything guy, the accountants. Uh, you know, I was the lead man in uh, giving big bonuses to my guys at the end of the year, cash bonuses. Mm-hmm. So I would have to pay the taxes, but I'm like, hey, I got this excess of cash. I'm splitting it up is you know, categories of guys who work a lot of hours, you know, three categories, A, B, and C. And 
people that makes people really happy because they never get treated like that. Mm-hmm. Then Prince heard about our team out there, and his guy did, and called me out on a little trial basis to bring a couple guys out. We survived 22 hours shooting two videos out of Prince's house, Paisley Park. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't know what we were getting into. You know, just wear full black, you know, long sleeve blacks. So it's like, oh, shooting videos. Okay. So it's 22 hours straight, and then we passed the test. We could stay up, be there, moving everything around. You know, Prince likes to work late night. Yep. You'll never see him in the morning. He'll show up about 1 o'clock and walk through, and then he'll be gone till about 5, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then, so I ended up getting that gig out there, which was really great because I had a bunch of young youngsters coming in, production staff, lead guys that had great potential. So I knew if I didn't want to hang out for Prince's rehearsals, I knew a couple of these youngsters, Prince would like, he would approve of me letting them stay and take my job for a day or two mm-hmm. instead of me sitting in for rehearsals. Because rehearsals are about, you know, 12 hours a day, if not more. And you just kind of basically kick back on the couch, big purple couch, and nap. Why they jam, you just take a nap. Why they Prince practices, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Great. He was great to work with, man. He's that's then cool. that brings me, you know, yeah. Then yeah. to you know, we we were with him for the last four years of his life. Mm-hmm. When I was heading there that morning when I got the the text, don't come out. Okay, it's figured it's canceled. Then it called, text everybody, cancel, cancel, cancel. Then I went home, saw it on the news. Somebody's wow. a body is there. So, but I still do the big production stuff. I, still, I work at First Avenue now, more like part time kind of thing, right? Which is which is a great place to be because I get to see all a lot of old friends come through suicidal tendencies and the Bauhaus people they're still around you know all us 50 year old guys and the specials and then all these new up and coming groups that are just so great you know it's what a, fun to watch the up and coming kids just tear it up what about reuniting with the Westies well uh, my buddy uh, uh, Peter Anderson's actually playing with them now so but you did in, and that's like, in the like around 2013. Oh, the re- yeah, the reunion gig. Yeah, that was, I wasn't really trying to, it, it, it was, I got a call from Terry. I'm going, well, okay, what's the catch? You know, it's a lot of money, okay, but I don't know. I like, I don't want to be disrespected, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, Kirk kind of disrespects me a lot. And he's kind of prima donna for me, and, and I don't like that. You know, it's not right. Oh, no, it's fine, blah, blah. All right, so he just did some rehearsals. They're supposed to be all, all the originals. Uh, Kyle included, but Kyle was obviously on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. But he did rehearse with us, so we were still going to have him play like six songs. But Kirk pulled the plug on that. I'm like, why? Why? He's already rehearsed six songs with us, and he wants to play. And Kirk said he's lying to my mom about using. Well, your mom knows he's using, dude. And really, I don't know how much time he has, but can you at least give him this pleasure to do this? And the people, you know, that paid to see him—that's part of why they're giving us so much money. It's a lot of money, you know. Mm-hmm. It basically was a money grab. I know for you know some of the guys they just wanted the cash because they don't work. And for me, it's like it's, I make the same amount working for Prince, you know, in a week. So you know, but uh, but it, you know, it's fun because we had some friends open up. Uh, I pressed up some T-shirts, all Westy T-shirts with the old Westy logo. I invested the money. It's like okay, guys, so I'm printing these shirts. And I, once we, we reach, this is the break-even point, and then I'll just throw it into the pots. We sell, whatever we sell, I'll just throw it in the pots, but it with everybody, you know, that's just how it works. That's how, you know. Yep. 
I think Kirk, Kirk put some iffy product up against our West T-shirts and iffy product won. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? You know, see, see where I'm getting at. It was like, this is kind of goofy. Now, this is just a money grab for some people. But it's a really cool show because we had all these artists up there helping us. You probably seen saw some of it on YouTube, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stars hanging down from from the ceiling and the artists kind of building around us as we're playing. Right. You know, and then, well, we did some more gigs after that. We did it uh, the following year. We did tried it again, but the egos just got bigger. And I'm like, you know, like the band got mad because we play in one gig and a re- one co- rental company had uh, some road cases in this huge dressing room. And just, why are those cases in there? They're supposed to be empty. <laughs> you know, we're supposed <laughs> to have this whole dressing room by ourselves. Like, geez, dudes, this room is huge. What's the problem? You know, it's like, so I had to go through that. So I just laugh at that because you guys, you're not big time, man. You know, <laughs> even the big time guys wouldn't be complaining about this. Yeah. You know, really, you know, just kind of discouraging at times, you know, juggling bass players in this, this round on that one. And Tommy wasn't interested in doing it anymore because he moved to uh, in the Netherlands. But I'm glad we got him for the reunion because he's one of the best bass players I've ever played with for sure. Tommy Merkel became our bass player in about the 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, we recorded a album live from Cannon Falls. I'm not sure. That was a Rev 105. It was our station that sponsored it with Kevin Cole. Mm-hmm. was our DJ. Kevin's out in Seattle now. You played on that live one? Yeah, me, me and Tommy and Kirk, Craig and Terry. It was a contest for about 15 people to come to the studio and watch us play. But so, the other guys decided they're going to hide away. So they don't want the audience to see them. I mean, the place is huge. It's big. So basically, it's just, they're just watching me and Tommy. And the other guys hid in the little side rooms. It's like, come on, you guys. Get out here on the main floor. This is what... <laughs> drop that ego stuff. You know? <laughs> so you were back in the band for a while in the 90s. Yeah, that's when the band was actually kicking... Like, really was kicking again. Because those guys had gotten clean. Mm-hmm. Tommy had joined up. And eventually... Jesse Green joined us. Uh, she now plays, you know, with uh, violins and keyboards with Pink and uh, mm. Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. Now she's getting in on the writing too. And now I've got a cassette from a, a bar that's in really great shape that I've hardly ever played. I might think about getting that out there of these songs that are just amazing songs nobody's ever heard. You know. Mm-hmm. And, and they, it all started with this Rev 105 live from Canna Falls. You probably hear, you've heard of it. Yeah, I have. It's older yeah. songs. Yeah, it's pretty much older songs. Uh, you know, Green Cat Island stuff, which I had to play on some of that's on there too. Yeah, we were we were already doing like four Green Cat songs. You know, before I was out, so those songs that should have been credited for them, but didn't get credit for them. But it's all right. Because we all always share credits when anybody's involved in something, you know, as long as we're all there, everybody gets credited. Well, for kind of being two separate sessions and uh, a mishmash a little bit, like this, this is a great record. I think it's as good, if not better, than hardly not even. Yeah, you know, I kind of, to me, it's kind of like the greatest hits that were never hits, you know, because it's kind of a mishmash like that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that stands out to you that you liked a lot? Uh, I really like uh, the slower song on side one is really good. I have to grab it here. It's about the third or fourth song on side one. Oh, that's uh, Curled Ending. Yeah, that's a great song. 
if I remember right. Yeah, curl mending. Yeah. I really like I really like Jack the Hammer. Holy Holy Cow too. Holy Cow's another great Kyle thing. Fingers crossed, Bobby, that we're going to see some of that unreleased stuff someday. And you know, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, so cool to hear from Bobby. Uh, seems like a, a real lifer with, uh, you know, roadieing, road crewing, stagehand. Uh, very cool, and and with Prince too, right? That must. I'm sure there are just zillions and zillions of stories there. Oh yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, he told me some more off air that were were just awesome. He mentions this Charlie Pickett record that I didn't know he played on some of it. It's on Twin Tone, 1986. Charlie, for people who don't know, was based out of Miami. Uh, pretty rockin', rootsy, bluesy, just really killer songs. I got into him when I picked up this killer comp on Bloodshot Records on a whim called Bar Band Americanus, which is basically a best-of comp with some rarities thrown in. That's a good place to start for anybody who uh, wants to check out Charlie Pickett. Nice surprise for me to hear to hear that from Bobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these unexpected connections. Yeah. Uh, he also mentions he was in this industrial tinge new wave band called <laughs> Kindergarten. Two words, spelled as two words. Yeah. Check that out. You can find it on YouTube. He played on their debut 12-inch EP, Interference, from 1982, and debut full-length called Number 3 from 1987, which was recorded by Steve Felstead at Nicolette. That's pretty interesting stuff. And then uh, the Shotgun Rationale record he played on, which... Again, we've talked about them recently. Yep. Uh, a band fronted by Sonny Vincent. As I mentioned in the interview, he must have been living in the Twin Cities for a while. I associate him with New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1989's Who Do They Think They Are, produced by Mo Tucker. Cheetah Chrome plays on about half of it. I've seen promo photos of the band from this era uh, with Mort Bauman, Cheetah, Bobby, uh, Sonny, and of course Bob Stinson. Mm-hmm in the band together. You can see the wicked stage clothes he mentions uh, on the front and back cover of this record. One of the most inter- interesting thing for me that he talks about is Ad Rock's movie script about Run, Westy Run. <laughs> You're like, what? Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, the interesting that to find out that Nick Cave was hanging around when they made Dookie City. Yeah, he helped with the album cover art. Yeah. And he mentioned the Live from Cannon Falls record. Do you mm-hmm. have that, right? I don't. Yeah. Didn't know he plays on it. I think it's pretty obscure. Talking about, you know, something that I've definitely heard referenced, but, you know, didn't really come up in the ter- in the interview with Terry is the band's reputation. Oh, yeah. The Run Junkie Run. Run Junkie Run, yeah. yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Uh, the New Music Seminar, 1988. They headlined SST's Power Rock Experience Showcase at CBGB's. The Westies did. With Soundgarden, The Last, Dos Domin, Sylvia Juncosa, Universal Congress of, Kirk Kelly, and Roger Manning. Wow. And then speaking of some bookage, Ryan, here's a few Bobby mentioned to me. And maybe you, this first one, maybe you have, I feel like maybe you mentioned it. Complicated Fun? You bet. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. The Birth of Minneapolis Punk and Indie Rock, 74 to 84, by Sin Collins. Yeah, that's good. But do you know of this one? Heyday, 35 Years of Music in Minneapolis, by renowned scene photographer Daniel Corrigan. I don't. With text by Danny Seigelman. That sounds cool. 
And then there's a First Ave book called First yes. Ave, Minnesota's Main Room, 2017 by Chris Reimenschneider. Yeah, those types of books are awesome. Like the the 930 Club one out of DC or the Horseshoe Tavern one out of Toronto. Love those types where they just focus on a club. So yeah, thanks to Bobby, man. Awesome, awesome chat. And thanks to Terry. He he got me and put me in touch with Bobby. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, uh, it just really brings the record to life to hear from those guys, right? Yeah. Like I said, I've I've heard this record, you know, several times before. Giving it a deep listen and then hearing it from the actual players just takes it to a whole other level. Super, you know, legendary band in their hometown, but right. I'm sure there's yeah. pockets outside of there, but yeah. really not a band that gets discussed. Yeah. Well, when you listen to this record and you just picture them playing live to a hometown crowd at this time, I bet you it was just awesome. Like, just awesome, right? Yeah, well, you actually don't have to picture it. There's lots of good footage on YouTube. Oh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, when I'm listening, when I'm actually playing the record on the turntable, I guess, and I'm just picturing it live. Yeah. Let's talk about the tracks, Ryan. Yeah. History Lesson, Part 2. So, Brant, this is like perhaps the beginning of an era, an unfortunate era, where I have no Spaceman spiel. Hmm. 1988 is looking to be a bit of a cutoff in terms of my access to Spaceman spiels for releases. So I wish I had one, but I don't. Mm, okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll start with the record. Side one, track one, mop it up. So this is the one that Terry told us uh, got Peter Buck super excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely a bit of a hit for the band, I think. There's some awesome pro shot footage of them playing this at a first Ave reunion show in 2013. I think it's the first reunion show. Bobby mentions it in the interview where they they had an artist kind of doing art in real time on stage. You can see that in the video. That's cool. Uh, and it was after a 15-year hiatus, this show. And they have Mark Perlman of the Jayhawks playing mandolin with them on this track. Gives the song a real laid-back vibe with the, mm-hmm. with the uh, mandolin. They play it a bit slower. Mark Perlman was from St. Louis Park as well, so he might have known those guys growing up, I bet. Yeah, you can see why it's a standout, why I caught Peter Buck's attention. It's super catchy. Yeah. Terry replicates the solo that's on this album, you know, uh, in that live performance. Yeah. And it's just rules so yeah. hard. I always love songs with acoustic guitars underneath the electric guitars yeah (laughs) total gives it a total stones the who throwback so i love that lots of these songs in the a side have that kirk kind of draws the lyrics which is perfect uh no lyric sheet with this one and it's too bad because you can Mm -hmm. tell the lyrics are amazing I, i usually don't focus on lyrics when i listen to music but you can't not with this band you can just tell they're really good. Yeah, especially after the Hardly Not Even where we had the, you know, the t- real treat of having those lyrics just to dive into. Yeah. A lot of these songs don't have choruses, especially on the B-side. And I'm wondering if that's because they're putting music to poetry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the second track, Holy Cow, really shifts gears with this descending lick that you know, and the beat that Bobby's playing really gives this almost a funky feel. It's not funk, but no, I I wrote down like a weird slinky gypsy guitar melody going on. 
Yeah. Sounds almost like talking heads or something like that at times. It doesn't sound out of place, though. Uh, those hot licks Terry tosses off every once in a while in all the right spots just make make the song for me. He's just such a tasty player. Yeah. So when I was listening to it this week, I was thinking back to the interview with Terry and how this this song is different, but it's not out of place, and how Terry and the guys would just come with a lick and just try it out and they would just go with it right it they weren't trying to sound like west run westy run they were trying to just make a song out of their own individual inspiration it seems like you know a lick here a lick there um you know a bunch of poetry out of a notebook and they'd smash it all together and make run westy run and that's what this song is yeah track three jack the hammer terry told me this one was one of kyle's songs there's some great footage from 86 at First Ave of them playing this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, total chaos up on that stage, like in the best <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, a great eerie bass line on this track too. I, that was something I picked out. Yeah. Uh, way more bass-centric on the Hardly Not Even record though. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. than this one. Uh, this double-track midsection with the harmonies it's just the cat's meow for me, though. Kirk's vocal with those kind of rockabilly hiccups that he uses. Mm-hmm. The bass line, the stop and start nature of this song, all wicked. Just love it. Yeah. Track four, Curled Ending. Kyle again, Terry told me. This is uh, one I singled out when I was talking to Bobby. Uh, I really did this song. I knew you would, too. I was like, this sounds like Brant's favorite Thunders-esque tipsy gypsy rock and roll lush party and he's all over it. I knew it. I'm a sucker for a good ballad, man. Yeah. It's got that, you know, the acoustics, some haunting slide. It kind of made me think of the Nils, actually, every time I heard it. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, they have a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know? I, I definitely kind of went in a kind of Thunders mindset though when i heard this one i don't know is that legit you tell me for sure you're the, re- you're oh. the resident resident tipsy gypsy not me well he was a balladeer man for sure yeah yeah you know? exactly track five rags and bones i like how they you know did these songs even the rock ones with really clean guitars on this side of the record really clean tone it's like later era acdc where there's virtually no distortion on the guitars yeah it's just yeah. volume yeah. it really works <laughs> This one, this is one of the ones with no chorus. It's kind of just Kirk ranting over top of a repeating section. And then what would, what would be the chorus is like just instrumental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a nice transition from curled ending the fade in and everything. Yep. Another standout for me, heaven's not that far away. A bit of a country rock thing. This could easily be a stones or even a guns and roses song. Killer vocal harmonies, too. Terry's playing mm-hmm. on this one is just so stellar. Yeah. Did you find, though, when you were listening to this record, and it's interesting, Bobby, as the drummer, kind of mentioned it, like the guitar tracks could actually be ratcheted up a bit. It's not that they're buried, but they could go up a couple dBs in the mix for me. Yeah. Well, they do on side two, I would say. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so side two starts with the song Open, written by Terry. Terry told me it was Kirk on sax, 
on this one. No training. He just had a go, is what Kirk said. And Kirk told me he sang into a giant industrial pickle jar for that vocal effect that <laughs> makes him sound like David Yao. <laughs> and you can see him on one of the videos singing into that pickle jar. Wow. Yeah, nice. he's just lugging it around stage. With him. You know that pickle jar got smashed too, for sure. Oh, yeah. They have, they're like, shit. We broke our pickle jar. We gotta find. We gotta find one when we get to the next town. Yeah. <laughs> they show up at the club. Hey, find us a pickle jar. No, 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 bigger. They had to eat the whole <laughs> jar of pickled eggs that was on the bar. <laughs> oh, yeah. that'd be so awesome. Uh, that yeah, that was their hospitality rider for the night. Hey. Yeah. The biggest jar of pickled eggs you can find. White tube socks and pickled eggs. Yeah. Uh, this song is just ominous sounding with the riff i have written here quote unquote ominous riff yeah no not a word of lie way dirtier sounding than the a side right off the bat terry told me he was playing his 76 les paul through a trainer mach 3 powerhead with 412 with a 412 cab Mm -hmm. the sax is a nice touch on this song yeah i thought it was a harmonica for a while there it's definitely the way it interacts with the guitars does, it's not totally clear that it's a saxophone. Mm-hmm. Uh, track two, Bad Guys. Love Bobby's playing on the rack toms on this one. They really stand out, and the mix on the drums is really great. Yeah, it's got a real different drum sound on this track from anything on side A, for sure. Yeah. Just a dirty rocker, this one. Terry just peels off a total fret melter that's double-tracked. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Terry's the star of this record for me. Yeah, I knew he would be. And this one sounds like, you know, bad guys. This would be an unhinged performance every yeah. single time. Yep. Bad News Wagon. This Terry said this was one of his riffs. Uh, more sleazy rock action, kind of built around this appreciated blues riff. Makes sense that this would have been Terry. It's so guitar-based. The howling Kirk is doing at the end with the kind of psychedelic overdubs. Yeah, the delay on the vocals used to great effect here. And we finally get the song about Bad News Wagon. We saw it on the back of the album art on the Hardly Not Even. It's the uh, get that Bad News Wagon out of Dookie Town or whatever. Right, good catch, man. That's a standout track for me, uh, as is the next one, Rabbit Head. Definitely some Stooges influence. That breakdown in the middle with like those shots on the toms and the, those lead breaks. Kirk's vocal even sounds like Ig a bit to me. Just the, just raw rock and roll. Yeah. This record needs a reissue. And oh, a re- yeah. A remaster and a reissue, and it would be amazing. Well, it's, gra- if- it's great right now, but man, it would be... Uh, I know it would be such a treat to hear these songs with a little bit of modern juice on them. It needs a box set is what it needs with the complete Dizzy Road sessions and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. all the, the, the Nicolette tracks and whatever else they have. Uh, the next track, G. Uh, this was a Craig song, Terry told me. This track almost has a stoner rock thing going, like what you'd hear Fu Manchu or one of those types of bands do. The wah-wah pedal, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thick, crunchy, double-tracked guitars on the main riff, and then it kind of goes into like you know, a palm muted part with the riff. Yeah. I thought like the solo was just awesome on this track too. Yeah. And then the last track on the LP black ball, 
This could be on Funhouse, musically and lyrically. I wonder if they were directly influenced by the Stooges or if it's just that blues influence. Coming I don't in. know. Uh, and then the CD tracks on the single. So the single was recorded at Danger Studios, a St. Paul studio, which was destroyed by a fire, apparently. Charlie Erickson engineered it April 19th and 20th, 1986. Dizzy Road is, uh, you know, one of those hit-the-road-jack type of riffs. Or In Cold Blood, Johnny Thunders, one of those kinds of riffs. That's kind of a one-riff song. Yeah. Terry just peeling off those total Hendrix licks in the chorus, kind of playing off the vocal. Is that a phaser guitar pedal, like, effect he's got going on? Is that phaser now and then? Mm, I didn't pick that out, but maybe. Hmm. Kirk's lyrics are just so cool. Sure wish there was a lyric sheet. Uh, And it's the A side of the single, and then the B side, Circles of Joy, just a tight little up-tempo rocker. Mm Mm-hmm. And No Way in the World. Kind of a laid-back groove. A little different than some of the other stuff, but it's cool. That's it. What a killer record. Did you like this more than Hardly Not Even? No, they're both probably even for me. If I was a guitarist like you, I would probably lean toward this one, I would say. Uh, Hardly Not Even, I definitely gravitate maybe a bit more toward that one because of the bass playing. But I, they're even-steven for me. I, yep. like them, I like them equally. Yeah, I don't want to pick either because they're both just killer records. But the one thing I'll say about this one is I really enjoyed the different feel on each side of the record. I mm. like that they sequenced it that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agreed. What about this artwork though, hey? Did you catch that this is our second week in a row where we've got underwater photography as an album art? <laughs> it's, it's very different though. This is not Henry Kaiser, uh, you know, scuba diving. This is, I'm only guessing, I don't know if this was in a, in a tank or an aquarium or an actual natural body of water because it looks like wild walleye fish at the bottom with like artistic shish kebabs and then like artificially planted asparagus with some broccoli floating on top and then in the background almost like this face made out of potatoes and I don't know, like... A hot dog? I missed the face, but I see it now on the back cover there. Yeah. It's on the front. It's the same picture, front and back, just the fish are in a different location. And Uh, one, and the front cover has the green hand, and the back cover does not. I think he said that's Kirk's hand. I wouldn't even have thought that was a real hand. Yeah. It looks like a real hand with some paint on it. It's making me hungry. (laughs) This photo is making you hungry? Yeah. I like red peppers, man. Whole red peppers just jabbed onto sticks. Yep. The LP labels have some doodles, I'm assuming, by Kirk, because he was, he. I'm pretty sure it was him who do, doodled the lyric sheet. on The lyric sheet, yep. For looks sure. like something the Kirkwoods would have doodled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a Meat Puppets feel, too. Side A almost looks like a, I don't know, like this bald, nude wrestler or, or skinhead, maybe. I don't know. Just some goon. And then side B, I could pick out a bone, but not much else. Yeah. The artwork's photographed by Nick Wogstad, who also did the single and the Hardly Not Even photo. What a wicked band, man. I'm so bummed we we never got that third SST record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, the Twin Tone record's killer. Yeah, it is good. 
No dead wax, Ryan, so I guess we're off to the ballot result. You betcha. Ballot result. This is a tough one, hey? I picked, like, half the songs. Mop It Up, Curled Ending, (laughs) Heaven's Not That Far Away, Open, Bad News, Rabbit, uh, Bad News Wagon, sorry, Rabbit Head, G, Dizzy Road. Yeah, I'd go with Mop It Up, Curled Ending, or Heaven's Not That Far Away. Those would be probably, and I, I mean, there's some great stuff on side too, but I just feel like those are the standouts on the record. They just happen to be on side A. We should probably not upset the Westies fans and put put Mop It Up on there. Yeah. Continue our tradition of putting on the first song on the LP. Yeah. I wonder how many of our ballot result picks are first tracks. Mm. Can I give you that homework for the 200th episode? Um, I don't do stats, <laughs> man. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, fair play. Awesome. Thanks, Terry, and thanks, Bobby. Yeah, so awesome to have them both on the show. Listen to both of these episodes to get the full Westies treatment for sure. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, episode 200 with Paper Bag, the Music to Trash LP. Can't wait to get into that. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.